0: What you're about to listen to may include some potty talk. Then again, it may not. I hope it does,
1: though.
0: It's Thursday, May 23rd, 2019. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So I have this odd interest in that I love to seek out the arguments of the worst causes just to see, you know, what's the worst they could come up with. Turns out it is pretty bad. Like on the Washington Post podcast, Post Reports, Jeff Stein, who writes for the Post about economic policy, was talking about Steve Mnuchin's arguments for not handing over the president's tax information to Congress. He doesn't really have an argument, just kind of says he didn't want to do it. But Stein, good reporter, doesn't end there. He said, well, if there were to be a decent enough argument, what might that be And here's what he put forth.
2: You know, one legal expert raised a point to me, which I I thought was interesting. And He said, look, Mnuchin may be wrong in saying that this is not a legitimate legislative purpose, but what if Congress at a future date asked for the tax returns of all Jews in America? What would Hmm. that look like? What would the ramifications for privacy or confidentiality be?
0: The Jews. We need the W-9s of the Weinbergs and the write-offs of the Abramoffs, the Jews. This is why Mnuchin, Jewish, is withholding the taxes of Donald Trump, grandfather of the Jewish. Is it, as Stein said, interesting? I don't know. As a partial Jew, I would like to see the Jews trotted out in some contexts other than the fiscal. So what if they posted online the criminal records of the Jews but wanted the tax records of the, let's say, the Peruvians? There doesn't, by the way, seem to be a good argument out there, so why not put this one out there or do what Mnuchin says, which is, nah, just don't want to give them to you. I was also looking at you why some of the anti-abortion forces think that not including a rape and incest exception is good politics. And I have not found any good arguments there on the political level. But in looking for that, I also was exposed to some of the moral arguments against a rape and incest exception. Now, you could imagine, I certainly have, the very clear moral argument against it. I'm not saying that I agree with the morality, actually, far from it. But if you were the kind of person who thinks that abortion is a great evil, then you think abortion is a great evil. It doesn't matter why. If you think abortion is the same thing as killing a baby, you would not want to have an exception for here's the one or two cases you can kill a baby. Fine. But there are other arguments against a rape and incest exception that are really, really bad. I was looking at the Human Life International site. They describe themselves as the pro-life missionaries to the world. So they were talking about, well, what do we do with incest victims who are pregnant? Definitely don't give them abortions, but why? And here's what they write. As with rape, the victim's problem is not that she's pregnant. Emphasis theirs. The main problem after the trauma of incest is how others think of her and treat her. Mm, I am not sure I would rank those problems as one and two. I'd maybe go two and one there, or one of those, not really a big problem at all. Human Life International... Then quotes one of the world's foremost experts, there with their words, he's actually an electrical engineer, experts on psychological impact of abortion, as saying, in fact, just as with rape, there is no psychiatric evidence, nor even any theory, which argues that abortion of an incestuous pregnancy is therapeutic for the victim. I don't really think it's supposed to be therapeutic. I think it's supposed to prevent an unwanted child. The Human Life International arguments go further. The problem the pregnant incest victim faces is not the pregnancy. It is the psychological pain of incest. Well, that is a pretty flagrant manifestation of the problem, is it not? And even if I stipulate that the pain of incest certainly is a problem, I don't know that being forced to have a baby you don't want because you're a victim of incest is the best way to overcome that pain. Or for a second to not argue on the terms of the Human Life International site, who cares what you say? Who cares what you put forth is the biggest problem of incest victims. If an incest victim doesn't want a baby, then incest victims should not be forced to have a baby. And she also probably shouldn't be told what her real problem is. Oh, there are more arguments. Abortion is to rape and incest what morphine is to pain. Not really, because if you take morphine, the pain comes back and you can get addicted. Neither of those things really apply to abortion. Also, morphine doesn't solve the underlying injury, but abortion certainly aborts the fetus. It continues, a physician would never treat his patient, it says his, patient only with morphine unless his was a hopeless case. To treat rape and incest pregnancies with abortion is a way of saying these women are hopeless cases. No, it's more a way of saying these women are pregnant and don't want to be. And here's the last thing I'll read from the Human Life International pro-life missionaries site they're talking about is to say that these women are hopeless cases, violated, tainted, damaged goods for whom abortion is a way to scrub away the scarlet letter. No, it is a way to scrub away the unwanted fetus. And let's ask this. Is it the forces of organizations like Planned Parenthood or anyone who's into women's reproductive rights who are hanging a scarlet letter on the victims of incest? Or does that sound more like something that might be conjured by, I don't know, someone who's on the website of the Human Life International pro-life missionaries to the world? I'm not sure if any of this helps you, but if you come across any horrible arguments, let me know. They are a little bit of an area of interest of mine. On the show today, I spiel about Andrew Johnson and what the first impeached president might have to teach us about the current office holder who might be seen as pre impeached. But first, two documentarians were at the scene in the moments and days after the shooting at Marjorie Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida and they followed family members and friends and boyfriends and girlfriends of the students who were killed. Up next, we are joined by these two filmmakers and a current Stoneman Douglas student whose boyfriend was killed that February day after Parkland is up next. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where it got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort, and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter And not to wallow in, he could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. After Parkland is a new documentary about that exactly. It follows survivors, family members, kids who were in the school And just chronicles them, what they've been doing. It's disparate things. Of course, the common strand is how the trauma of that day and those deaths are affecting them now. The documentary filmmakers are Emily Taguchi and Jake Lefferman. Also with me is Tori Gonzalez, who's featured in the documentary. She was there that day. Her boyfriend, Joaquin Guac Oliver, died uh, in the shooting. And she's been very active since then. We're going to talk to all of them. Thanks for coming in, guys. Thanks Thank for having us. So, Emily, I'll start with you. If this were a piece of written journalism, what would the nut graph be?
3: The film, like you said, it chronicles the, the days, the weeks, the months since that day and how families put one foot forward after the other in a search for meaning after something horrific and senseless. That happened upon them.
0: And Jake, did you... So what were your marching orders going in? Did you have certain... I mean, I think there are two or three of the kids who we need to hear from. Emma Gonzalez, David Hogg, they're pretty famous. There's a couple of very active parents and teachers. But then how did you decide who else you were going to track?
2: Yeah, I think... You know, initially you saw a lot of students very vocal, making headlines, and that was wonderful and necessary. We went down there sort of looking for students and families who were perhaps less in the headlines, um, families uh, and students who were really affected or close to the trauma, and we wanted to hear those stories. And so we worked hard to slowly and patiently make our way into those homes and get to know those families.
0: And Tori, why did you want to work with the filmmakers? Why did you say yes to them?
1: When we started, I was definitely in a lot of shock. So I, I barely remember starting this. But I think what kept me going was knowing that eventually it was going to impact other people and maybe inspire them to push through whatever they're going through if, if they can see, you know, the pain that I'm suffering and, and the hardships that I am suffering, you know, that you can do anything I was just hoping it could do that for other people.
0: Were you very involved in the political part of the activism that rose up afterwards?
1: At first, no. It took me a while. Eventually, I of course got on board with Change the Ref, and I support everything they stand for.
0: And what is tell Tell me about Change the Ref. Change the the Ref is
1: an organization empowering youth generations and pushing for gun control, of course.
0: So, I would think that early on, your main this wasn't a conscious choice, but you just had to grieve and you're still grieving, right? But you couldn't think about legislation and advocacy. You could just think about the fact that your friends and your boyfriend were killed. So, then did it become apparent to you that? this would help you or this would help other kids? I guess what I'm trying to ask is, how did you transition? It was probably gradual and is still ongoing. But how did you transition from just being in that mostly emotional place to being in a place where your efforts were directed at things like legislation?
1: Seeing Joaquin's parents push immediately um, gave me that door to open to know that that can help me heal maybe faster or in an you know, easier uh, gradual way and in my heart i realized that that i don't believe that guns are for everyone and i i believe that it, there needs to be you know reasonable laws put in place so that things like this don't happen because i don't want anyone to go through what i'm going through
0: did you think about it much before
1: no i knew, i never i never liked guns that's yeah. just me i'm i'm very i mean i'm honestly afraid of them i, I don't think that if if this were my perfect world, guns would have never been invented. That's me. But yeah. being reasonable now, I know that with what's going on now, we just have to take action to prevent further incidences.
0: You know, is it – I think that people from the outside might just say it's an impossible situation and the NRA is running everything and our love of guns is just, you know, baked into the legislative process. But since you've seen the legislative process and you've probably talked to some legislators who actually did – I know in Florida, people who were pro-gun for most of their votes changed a little bit. Is that just because when you and very sympathetic kids are in front of them – it's a lot different of a calculation? Or do you think that because you're channeling America's intent as a whole, like through your person, you're actually changing their minds? I guess the question is, do you get the sense that they like you and they feel sorry for you or that they've really come to fundamentally change on the gun issue, these legislators who you talk to who may have changed their votes?
1: I think they're full of pity.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes.
1: And my opinion is, you know, the first step is detaching the relationship between the NRA and funding these politicians. And then that can hopefully open their eyes to the actual issue and not just having their eyes on the money, you know?
0: Do you think that pity is useful? No. Yeah.
1: I think empathy is useful.
0: Yeah. Did you come across sentiment that, because it was largely absent from the documentary, hatred toward the shooter himself? Like, was that out there and you just, that's not what you focused on? Or was that largely absent from the people you talk to.
2: I'm sure it's there in the community. It's not something that people actively told us. A lot of our conversations were about an individual's personal grief or their family's struggles or what they were doing to keep moving forward. And I think what the kids have said throughout this um, is that this isn't about the shooter. This is about the victims. And it should be—it should stay that way.
0: I mean, that's surprising. I don't know why— There there must be elements as to why that is, but to not personify this, it was a person who made these choices with with these instruments, these weapons of war, but it was a person. And in so many cases, you know, that person is rightfully blamed and a lot of the blame falls on that person. Why isn't it happening here as much as you might expect, do you think?
1: Um, At my school, we do, I I sit with a bunch of teachers at lunch every day. I'm the only kid with all them. So So... I don't socialize very much. Uh-huh. <laughs> After this, it was difficult. But um, they talk about what comes out in the news about him. And we all talk about, we'll, we'll focus on the mental health aspect that, yes, it was his fault. Uh-huh. But everyone failed him. Yeah. And he could have been helped. So we do talk about it, but it's very painful. You know, when, when I see his picture, when I hear his name, it's just, you You get so angry that you don't want to feel it. Right. So I think that's how a lot of people feel, and that's why it doesn't come up.
0: What's the important thing for people to know that goes beyond pity? This idea of pity and empathy, that is a really impactful idea to me. So how to take it beyond pity? What's the important way to, what's the important frame to look at the entire incident that's beyond, oh, it's so sad that this happened?
1: I think you have to step away from the politics, 100%. You can't look at the, you can't look at gun control. You can't look at any of that. You have to understand that no matter who it is, you know, someone lost that person. And you have to look at it and say, you know, what if that was my best friend? What if that was my dad? What if that was my daughter? Because everyone who died was so important to, you know, at, at least one person. And people, you, you just have to put yourself in their shoes. You have to actually try to understand that this pain is beyond belief. And they just look at, politics and, and don't really feel your heart, but you need to.
0: Do you think that the community has been strong? You always hear that.
1: We've all come together, of course, I, I guess in that way, as one. Individually, I think there are, of course, faults here and there. But yeah, as a whole, I would say yes, strong.
0: What surprised you guys from talking to so many different people who are affected by it? I think just the strength of of the kids and the families
3: I think it's also was surprising to see, you know, these students who from day one said never again, but you don't didn't know how that was going to sustain itself. And then eventually there was the national school walkout. There was the March for Our Lives. I think um you know there's gun violence is a very polarizing issue and there's you know, like the two fathers in our film I think if you look at them politically they sit on very different sides but no matter where you are on that spectrum I think we can all agree kids should not be shot in classrooms. Right. And so for the students to be able to keep that conversation going and organize these walkouts that happened across the country was both surprising and inspiring.
0: Tori, what? Have you read anything or watched anything or, or uh, taken in any, I don't know, movies, sentiment, media that helped you in any way? Even even people giving you advice, something that didn't come from just inside your own brain, something that made you realize or contextualize everything that you were going through?
1: Not really, honestly. I've kind of been to myself and, and guided myself through this. I read a lot of poetry. Yeah. That kind of helps me sometimes to, just to know that the pain is not only in me.
0: If we saw your artwork the months before this happened and in the last year, I don't know, have you been doing a lot of artwork? Mm-hmm. How's it, has it been coming through in the artwork?
1: I would say so, but it's subtle. But I describe, understand describe. it. Describe. Um, what,
0: what would some of your artwork be and how might what you've been through? For example, I'll, I'll explain
1: one. I don't think anyone's even seen it, but I have this little painting, random colors, random... I mean designs and whatever. It's very abstract. Um, and in the middle, randomly, it says um, "Where?" question mark. And for me, that's like galaxies and galaxies and worlds and worlds and where's Joaquin? Yeah. But if you look at that, nobody's gonna say. You know, it's 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 to me it, it means something. Someone else is gonna be like, "What is she thinking?" <laughs> so.
0: <laughs> and beforehand, know. how what what did your artwork look like? And let's also take into account, you know. You were, what, 16 then? 17 then? Yeah. 18 now? Those, are, You know, those are big changes. You can, yeah. Artists change a lot from then to then.
1: I've definitely found myself throughout this. So before, my art was looking at something else and drawing it, looking at something else and painting it. And now I really grab this, the stuff from my heart and, and put it out on a canvas. And that's one of the positives that's come from this. I've really, really found myself and found that I am unapologetically allowed to be myself.
0: After Parkland is the name of the new documentary. Its filmmakers are Emily Taguchi and Jake Lefferman. In the film is Victoria Tori Gonzalez. She's been with me too, guys. Great to meet you, and thanks so much. Thanks Thanks for having having us. us. now the spiel. I've been thinking about impeachment as regards the president of the United States, that is. Maybe you have two. It seems like the House Democrats have. And it also seems like Trump certainly has. I have a meeting right before this meeting to talk about the I-word. The I-word. Can you imagine? I guess that means impeachment could have been referring to, uh, I don't know, irresponsible, irredeemable, idiotic. Let's not assume. Because you know what they say, assuming makes an ass of you and Ming assuming you are doing your assuming with former Houston Rocket Center Yao Ming. Anyway, I can think of all the good arguments for impeachment, I really can. Arguments that call upon a sense of duty or a sense of justice or a sense of satisfaction or a sense of revenge. If this were a dramatic script, you'd have to have that showdown happen over impeachment, it would be called for. You impeach to send a signal, you impeach to do your job, you can impeach with gritted teeth or you can impeach with glee there are so many emotions that would be serviced by impeaching. And there is just one counter argument. And it is that it wouldn't work. And in the end would wind up hurting Democrats more than helping them. And that's it. And that's a frustrating argument. It's frustrating because I think it's right. It's like riding a motorcycle. There are so many reasons to take up riding a motorcycle. It's cool. It's fun. It marks you as rebellious. It keeps you young. Or if you are young, it makes you feel mature. Wind in your hair. If you're bald, helmets to cover your baldness. It's easy to maneuver in the city. Great mileage on the highway. So many good reasons to ride that motorcycle. There's really just one not to, is that the motorcycle could crash and that will hurt you. Pretty much the same thing with impeachment. One argument against it. But it is the rebuttal to all the arguments for it. It's more exciting. It's braver. It's active versus passive to go with impeachment over not. Although not impeaching actually isn't passive. It's more like an act of supreme self-control. It is a hard thing to hold on to. I still think it's right. But I want to bring impeachment so badly because I think about it, and I've said this before, that impeachment could lead to a conviction. Even if it doesn't, it might convince the public. Uh, so the Republican senators might not come along, but the, the public could. And even if it doesn't convince the public, it's not certain it'll hurt you in the 2020 elections, right? I mean, maybe voters will say, okay, Pelosi whiffed on impeachment, kind of a waste of time. But now that I have to choose between Trump and Warren or Trump and Harris or Trump and Biden, Buttigieg, whoever, maybe, maybe voters will still vote for the Democrats. Possible. I was thinking of all this as I was reading Brenda Wineapple's new book, The Impeachers, The Trial of Andrew Johnson, and The Dream of a Just Nation. An excellent book. We will have a full conversation with Wineapple on Tuesday, I believe. But it is clear who the heroes of history are. It was those who dared to hold a terrible president accountable. And there are so many words written in the book that could inspire men now. Like this, impeachment is the refuge of the common sense of a nation, which in the moment of difficulty says to the magistrate, you ought to have known by your common sense, your moral sense, that it has unfitted you from office. Chills. And how Andrew Johnson was described as a man who quote, believed himself shrewd. And according to one observer had quote, allowed passions and spite to destroy his judgment. He was impeached, remember, and he was acquitted by just one vote on one of the articles of impeachment. One very long article of impeachment was just citing all the times he gave speeches and used invective and calumny and really chastised his opponents, and they called that a betrayal of his oath of office. Wineapple described one speech spurred on by rage. He was seething, quote, mixing self pity and pride. He worked himself into a pitch. Speeches like those made their way into the very articles of impeachment. Let me read from article 10. That said Andrew Johnson, president of the United States, unmindful of the high duties of his high office and the dignity and properties thereof, little 19th century verbiage, did attempt to bring into disgrace, ridicule, hatred, contempt, and reproach the Congress of the United States and the several branches thereof, to impair and destroy the regard and respect of all the good people of the United States for Congress and the legislative power thereof, to excite the odium and resentment of all good people of the United States against Congress. A little more 19th century verbiage, and it says that he did make and declare with a loud voice certain intemperate, inflammatory, and scandalous harangues, and therein utter loud threats and bitter menaces, as well against Congress as the laws of the United States duly enacted thereby amid the cries, jeers, and laughter of the multitudes then assembled in hearing.
3: It's the party of Maxine Waters. Do you believe her?
0: No, 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 no. This has become the party of Maxine Waters and Nancy Pelosi. That's who it is. So they don't mind crime. They want open borders. We want really tough borders. And we want people to come in. Right, right. How'd that president get in here? Anyway, there was one other resonance with the Andrew Johnson example, Because it was said that Johnson, like our current president, was so unfazed by any pushback from the legislative branch, so unconcerned with the norms or laws of governance, that it seemed as if he was daring Congress to impeach him. Many Democrats now believe this. Nancy Pelosi said so today. The White House is just crying out for impeachment. That's why...
2: He flipped yesterday.
0: The White House is crying out for impeachment, she says there. She said the Democrats weren't delivering, and that is what made President Trump cancel his infrastructure meeting yesterday.
2: But I think what really got to him was that these court cases and the fact that the House Democratic Caucus is not on a path to impeachment. And that's where he wants us to be.
0: Maybe Trump is being tactical, but let me offer another suggestion from history the tactic could be the wrong one. George Clemenceau, who would go on to be Prime Minister of France during World War I, was actually a journalist covering America in the 1860s. I did not know that. He witnessed Andrew Johnson's indifference or even attraction to congressional impeachment, and he noted that Johnson got the impeachment he seemed to be courting. Here is what Clemenceau wrote. The president called upon the lightning lightning And then the lightning came. It is not inconceivable that our current president, so attracted to the spark and electricity, could also find himself burned. And that's it for today's show. Pierre bien and Daniel Schrader produced the gist and each favor some horrible arguments about why exceptions should be made to the no-shoes-no-shirt-no-service refrain common in fine dining establishments. Didier Raphael, a senior producer of Slate Podcasts, she herself has some horrible arguments against the restriction about putting Q-tips not in the ear but around it. Perforated eardrum, that would be a good argument. Increases reception? I'm suspicious. The gist. There is a good argument not to mock Steve Mnuchin too badly. It's that he controls the treasury. But there's also a bad one. It goes like this. Steve Mnuchin's wife, Louise Linton, wears leather gloves that extend to the elbows and if you mock him she might peel one off smack you across the face and thus force you to declare satisfaction possibly on the bluffs near weehawk in new jersey and thanks for listening